You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelists Christina Bieberlake and Marie Hawes. Hey, Christina and Marie. Hey, Hello. happy to be here. Really excited to uh, talk to you both about one of my very favorite things. Uh, but first, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the show. Christina, you go first. Okay, I'm Christina Bieber Lake. I teach English at Wheaton College, have done so for a very, very long time, and I had not read Interior Castle for about 20 years, so this was a nice thing to return to for the evening. Exciting. I'm, uh, I'm so excited to hear how your opinions, if your opinions, have changed. Yep. Marie, how about you? Hi, I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show. I've studied Renaissance literature at Florida State University and women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale Divinity School, and I'm currently living in Connecticut with my family, including our newest tiny little one who is just uh, seven weeks old. Um, hopefully we will not be hearing from him <laughs> in this show. <laughs> He's just starting to sleep through the night. Congratulations, and uh, that that's a welcome interruption, if ever I've heard one. <laughs> Thanks. Not to mention from the mouth of babes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure his contribution would be excellent. Thanks, Marie. Uh, and as I said, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, one of the founders of the CFP. Uh, like Marie, I went to graduate school at Florida State University. I got a PhD from there in Renaissance drama and gender and sexuality studies. Uh, and it is while there that I completely fell in love with the topic of today's episode, uh, St. Teresa of Avila. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that, why we're doing this episode, and also a short biography of St. Teresa before we dive into what we're reading today. So St. Teresa is one of the people who made me a Catholic. Um, I've been a Catholic for two and a half, almost three years, uh, but I have felt the pull toward the Catholic Church uh, for much longer than that. And one kind of early contributor to that is when I was in graduate school, I took uh, this really wonderful class um, of lyric poetry, lyric uh, renaissance textualities. Marie, were you in that class? Was that a cold iron class? Yeah, yeah, with Anne. I, yeah, I think I was. 
Okay, uh, so I thought so. We did a unit in that class on the female mystics and their poetry, and I ended up in Anne's office. Um, I've, I've talked about Anne on this podcast several times. She was a, a mentor of mine and is still a very important person in my life. And I was talking to her about these female mystics and the way that they melded the physical and the spiritual um, in ways that I hadn't really seen before um, that was especially important to my religious journey as a disabled person. Um, Anne is also disabled. She lives with lupus and chronic pain, and so that is something that we bonded over. And uh, she told me to read all of Interior Castle. I think we read a, a very short excerpt from it in that class. Um, if we didn't, she just gave it to me to read because of what we were talking about. And I just couldn't look away from it. I, I wanted to like wrap myself up in that text, and I couldn't stop thinking about uh, Teresa of Avila and how she really helped me understand um, a part of myself that I don't think I understood until that moment. Uh, so I really think the way that she bridges concerns of the individual physical body and the corporate spiritual body are perfect topics for our show. Uh, I also think that this is a timely discussion. Uh, when this episode drops, provided it drops on schedule, um, that'll be October 14th, and St. Teresa's feast day is on October 15th. Uh, so if you listen to this episode on time, um, know that we are very close to celebrating her in the liturgical calendar. So just a, a bit about her biography before we jump into the text. St. Teresa of Avila lived from 1515 to 1582 um, in Avila, Spain. She was a Spanish noblewoman and a mystic, and she was deeply devoted to the Catholic Church, um, and as such was a very important figure in the Counter-Reformation, as well as a huge proponent of the education, both secular and religious, but especially religious, of women. Uh, this is one reason that she was, much later, named the first female doctor of the Catholic Church. She also founded the Discalced Carmelite Order. Uh, the Discalced Carmelites split off from the larger Carmelite Order um, because they are cloistered and contemplative. They model themselves after the desert fathers and mothers, uh, and they as I said, are cloistered, they're separate from the rest of the world, um, though there are also lay Carmelites who follow this call to contemplation in their everyday lives. Um, I've had some really wonderful conversations with some lay Carmelite women, um, and they're a great community too. And today we're reading short excerpts from two of her most famous works, uh, Interior Castle and her autobiography. We're also talking about uh, my favorite prayer of hers as well. So I have talked a lot in these first few minutes, so now I'm going to turn it over to you, Marie, and Christina. Uh, tell me about your prior experiences of Teresa of Avila and her work. Well, I, I can't really remember when I first heard about her. I know I already knew about 
like something about her when I was in undergrad and I went on a study abroad semester and went at one point to Rome and saw the, the famous statue of her uh, transverberation. Um, but I've mostly um, encountered her writings in a women mystics course that I took a few years ago taught by Janet Ruffing. And um, we were mostly looking at the interior castle then. Although at the time I was very uh, pregnant and very nauseous all of the time. So not much of it penetrated past the, the constant vomiting at that point. <laughs> so I was glad to revisit her in a little bit more depth um, in preparation for this episode. I mean, in a lot of ways, she is the perfect saint to read yeah. when you are violently <laughs> ill, right? We'll, we'll talk about that some more. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Christina? Yeah, um, I first encountered her over 20 years ago. I think when I'd started teaching at Wheaton was also when I moved from being a Presbyterian to being Anglican from my study of Flannery O'Connor. And I was at that time intensely interested in women uh, writers who were spiritual, spiritually focused and in particular mystics and Julian and Norwich and some of the others. And I then, of course, heard of Teresa and picked up Interior Castle and read it through. And, you know, I found it at the time a great deal more abstract than I find it right now. So I will say at the outset that I have always kind of struggled with most of the writings of the mystics because they feel sort of like, um, well, out there a little bit. <laughs> Uh, and a little less grounded, and um, but I'm 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 sort of revising that as I as I get older, I guess. I think that's a that's a fair impression, and and also I think there is something about these writings that does kind of change as your life experience changes. So we can uh, we can hopefully dig into that more too. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about Interior Castle as a text. Um, what is it doing? How does St. Teresa depict the human soul uh, in this text? And what are those metaphors up to? Well, I mean, the central metaphor of the, uh, the castle, the thing that I like most about it, I think, is that it's not just this like opaque castle, but she describes it as clear as a crystal so that there's the, the light of the divine shining out of the soul um, from the, the presence of God at the center of the soul. Yeah, and so that the metaphor of the, of the interior of the soul being the most beautiful sort of room inside of a castle was something that really struck me more powerfully this time uh, because it's so quickly much, it's very much like, this is a very beautiful thing, this, this place, this, this uh, place in which you are clearly seen in the image of God. It's almost like stained glass with lights shining through it, but crystal clear. So the clarity of the light comes through. I was, I was very moved by that. And I happen to agree with Robert Frost that metaphor is the height of all thinking. So that makes me always very interested in this way that metaphors work and their limits and their strengths. So I was very glad to have this question come up first. What do you guys think? Of, is there, is this a good metaphor? 
I think it's a fantastic metaphor, um, particularly coming from someone who um, we'll talk about later in the autobiography, um, has a very complex relationship with her physicality and the way her physicality relates to her spirituality. Um, I, I think it's it's a great metaphor. And I love that um, you talked about the soul being the castle. Um, each kind of section, each mansion of the interior castle um, is about a different part of the castle. And the first mansions that we read about for today um, center on the issues of prayer and sin. And she says that prayer um, is the gate of the soul that will eventually lead us to God. I, I love that idea of prayer as a gate, um, particularly for me. I'm someone that was, though I was raised evangelical, I was never terribly comfortable with um, with corporate extemporaneous prayer. I'm someone who has kind of climbed the liturgical ladder partly because I find a lot of strength in old prayers that people have said throughout decades and centuries that makes me feel um, safe and protected and it does make me feel closer to God. Uh, so yeah, I, I really like that metaphor, particularly prayer as a gate. Mm. And it struck me too that there's this emphasis on, you know, the Lord Jesus being at the very center of of it. So she's like, don't be confused about this. This is not a string of, of rooms. This is, you know, surrounding the center. And at the center of the most beautiful clarity is, is the Lord God. And that to love him and to know him is to understand the beauty of your soul. And I, I just think that's great. So if I can banish from my mind, you know, the image of the crystal cathedral that really tarnishes this whole thing, then I'm really good with it. I wondered how long it would take somebody to mention the Crystal Cathedral. Thank you very much for Sorry. that. <laughs> Sorry. Did kind of ruin it, though. No, it's yeah. great. Um, I mean, no, it's terrible. It's not great. But it's great. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but you mentioned that it's not being a string of rooms and how she talks about that. That was interesting to me because I was having trouble at first sort of like imagining the architecture of this castle. Like, is it supposed to be a Nautilus type thing where you go through one room after another? And that's specifically what it's not supposed to be. She says it's not being a string of rooms. And then I was thinking, is it like these sort of Dantean circles surrounding the center? Um, I got a Dante feel a little bit from it, yeah. got to say, especially with the gates and all the reptiles and stuff hanging out by the gates that are trying to keep you from coming in. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Well, yeah, <laughs> those weird reptiles. But she, she talks about uh, a progress towards the center, certainly. So it seems like there's sort of concentric mansions. But at the same time, I, would, I, I appreciate that she talks about how you're supposed to like move around from one section to another and not just stay in same uh, dwelling places. Um, so right, right. That, um, like it not being just this progression of one place subordinated to another place. Um, and I ended up actually imagining it as a kind of like crystal Dyson sphere because in, uh, 
one of her early biographers describes her talking about the the, the the interior castle is being like a sphere of crystal. So imagine if it's concentric, it's like concentric spheres and you can move in and out. Oh, interesting. That's very cool. Uh, well, you mentioned the, the reptiles um, guarding the gates. Let's talk about them. What do they, uh, what do they represent? Yeah, it's sort of like your sin, your distractions, things that the devil tries to throw in your way that will keep you from appreciating the beauty of the soul, right? The things that will and keep you away from, from, the, from the truth of, of the dignity and the beauty of, of being made in the image of God. That's the way that I read it. And there are a lot of things that masquerade as good. Oh, so, I, I I really saw that differently than I'd ever seen it before. I mean, it's, she's very clear about how you can have this person who seems to be looking for perfection and all this and really be misled. And I liked that. Yeah, I, I, I guess I wasn't expecting that frankness in the you know 1500s. I, well, let's let's talk about that too. I first of all, I I agree, um, and I I want to get to sort of her use of metaphor as particularly medieval and what we think about that. Um, but before we move on to that, um, these metaphors, the idea of the progress of the soul to worship God. Uh, does that resonate with how the two of you think about your own spiritualities or not? Well, to me, I guess in the, like the most foundational sense of the metaphor of the effort towards self-knowledge and recognizing the presence of God at the center of my life, that resonates with me because that's, a struggle and she's talking about this through a metaphor of a struggle to enter into the castle um and that's a struggle that i have to achieve that recognition and to sort of recognize the light of the divine that exists in the center of other other people like the, mm. the various distinct stages and the separate rooms and the types of prayer um not they don't all specifically resonate with me. They're a little bit uh, complicated for me to understand, actually. Right, right. But the first mansions there seem pretty, pretty clear. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I really liked that right. I, I felt has been a kind of a descriptor of my own spiritual journey is that she really emphasizes the importance of accurate self-knowledge and equates accurate self-knowledge with humility. And I just feel like that can't be said enough. <laughs> to really recognize yourself is to recognize you're a creature in need of God. But it's all so there's an, a debasement, sort of. I mean, your self importance can't be elevated, but it's also an elevation because you're like made in the image of God, and this is a, this is makes your soul beautiful. So the crystal part, the clarity, the sun, the light coming in. 
shining in. It's that ancient uh, structure of illumination, you know, purgation, illumination, and unification, if I'm right, right, uh, that that I was very interested in learning about how different mystics describe that. Like you accurately see sin, then you're, then you're illuminated by this insight of the beauty of who, of who you are. And that is really truly what happened to me when I have had the most intense period, periods of growth. So. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful, Christina. Thanks for sharing that. And, that kind of illumination, that kind of um, internal examination is why I think this uh, this text, really digging into this text, is, is a grown person's game. I think that's why this text gets better as you progress through life. Um, I'm, I'm sure I will find more things to discover about it and, and love about it um, as I progress yeah. further into middle age and get older, um, because I, it certainly is a even more beautiful text than it was when I was 18 or 20 or 25 or 30. Yeah. And, and this equation of self-knowledge and humility, it, it's so straightforward and so clear. I'll just read it in my translation. She says, I do not know if I've explained this clearly. Self-knowledge is so important that even if you were raised right up to the heavens, I should like never to relax your cultivate, cultivation of it. So long as we are on this earth, nothing matters more to us than humility. So there's a complete equation of accurate self-knowledge and humility. Um, and, you know, this is what it means to walk closer to God, is to have both of those, those things, those things uh, equated really marvelous. It's lovely. Uh, Marie, do you have anything to add here? Oh, well, it just strikes me that at the end of the section that we read on the, uh, the first dwelling places, that accurate self-knowledge and awareness of the presence of God leads to like a greater willingness to coexist with others and not to she talks about like backbiting specifically I think um, which is something that um, we can all learn from today still I think that's a good point the sort of like section where she said I was really working hard to I got maybe this one is in the biography I don't mean to confuse them but working hard not to be the sort of person who speaks about other people and then she mentioned that you know, behind their backs, and then other people found that really attractive in her. And that's been my experience as well. When I work really hard at that, like, I'm not going to be the sort of person who talks about people behind their back. It is very appealing. Uh, people feel safe, you know, around you. And, and there's, a, there's a spiritual maturity to that, that I could ju- you could just see the wisdom sort of seeping out of her when she's making those kinds of comments. Um, but you can tell they're also hard won, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I mean, I think it's it's such a common human experience to, I, mean, I, I think anyone who has lived in any kind of community has um, has struggled with that in at one time or another, and also has has understood the real gift 
that being thought a trustworthy person or finding a trustworthy person um, in community is. I I really get a lot out of that section because it makes yes. me it makes me feel better to think of um, the discalced Carmelites, a, a group of women who I have elevated um, for decades and and really um, try to take as spiritual models in as many ways as possible. To think of them kind of dealing with you know petty arguments petty and things, com- yeah. communal living yeah. and all of this you know like human silliness um if if they have to deal with that and and get through it together like that makes me more comfortable in my own struggle right and there's a way in which being julian for instance locked up in her cell with her cat is a lot easier than living with a bunch of flawed human beings Right. I'm not, I'm not saying I prefer that, but you know, you know what I mean. No, no shade to Julian, who um, we we love very openly on this show. Yes, we um, love her. But I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's um, there's definitely pros and cons to both um, both situations, and and things that we can learn from both uh, situations as well. Mm. Yeah, I've been just I'm teaching a class in reading literature for spiritual transformation right now. So part of what I had my students read was um, Bishop Barron. And there's this section that has just stuck with me on his, it's I can't remember, Theology of, of Transformation, or I think is the name of the book. He's wonderful. And, oh, he is wonderful. And he's got this whole section where he, he's very clear that the goal is for people to move from a small, fearful soul, the pusilla anima, the small soul, where we get the word pusillanimous from, to the magna anima, the large soul. And I love just thinking of it that way. And that involves, yeah, magnanimity. And magnanimity has always been a virtue that I really love in people and have striven to, you know, I strive to have magnanimity, to, to be generous with myself, to be giving of praise easily, you know, good praise, you know, like encouraging. Because it's, it's a bigness of heart and generosity, right? All the things that you really like in people when you, when you see it being genuine. And so that necessarily involves loving others. I mean, that's what it is by definition. You can't be a magnet, you know, you can't have magnanimity alone. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You have to give of yourself, the largeness of yourself to others. And I, I just see much more of that in this text than I did before. I guess also I have words for it now. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, Okay, so let's move along a little bit. Um, Marie, you mentioned that some of the later mansions um, are a little more difficult to understand. Uh, we're not getting there today, but is there anything that you found tricky in the first mansions that you disagreed with or you maybe had some trouble understanding? Um, well, one thing would be like just at first glance, I get the impression in this uh, first mansion section that there can be a kind of subordination and denigration of the body going on, which is something that I have trouble with, with um, lots of uh, mystical writers. So I'm particularly interested to hear 
what your impressions of her her bodily experience are here, Victoria, that you've um, mentioned. Because at first glance, it seems like the body being just like the outer wall of the castle and the setting of the soul diamond um, is like it's a pretty low place for the the body to occupy. But what I also know, I, uh, in Saint Teresa's writings. Um, there is a lot of emphasis on embodied experience, so it's a little bit hard for me to reconcile. Like in that famous passage in chapter 29 of the of her autobiography where she describes the transverberation of her heart, she talks about how the body has a share in it, indeed a great share in talking about the pain and pleasure. Um, so it's uh, like with other mystical, uh, other mystics, um, like St. Mary of Egypt that we talked about in a different episode, it seems like there's kind of a paradox in relation to the body, like it, the body being denied and mortified, but also being part of how the divine can be experienced. Yeah, I think uh, you're you're right to touch on that complexity. Um, it is one of the things that draws me to her as a person. Uh, I also think that there is more of that complexity um, both later in Interior Castle and in um, the autobiography, particularly the, the section of the autobiography that I um, chose to read. So we'll get there in just a few minutes. Um, but, I, but I think the real answer to your question, at least my personal answer to your question, is I think that St. Teresa does a more nuanced job than a lot of medieval thinkers do to um, to use the physical and the temporal to make sense of the spiritual and internal. Um, I think for a lot of medieval thinkers, those things are an either-or proposition, and I think that St. Teresa makes those things um, and we can really see this in the autobiography, um, a both-and proposition instead, that there are ways that uh, God's creation and inspiration of our physical bodies point us to him, and that connection is a, is a very powerful connection. Mm. Yeah, That's well said. I think, I think she is nuanced in it, and more nuanced certainly than any of the Puritan, right? I mean, there's a Catholic, a, a Catholic feel, a Catholicism um, that's sacramental, deeply sacramental in the way that she's thinking about the body, and therefore you cannot fully denigrate it in the way that a Puritan might. And when I first read this book, I was, I mean, my whole, my life, my life's work is against Gnosticism, right? So I'm very sensitive to this issue of of uh, denigrating the body and elevating, you know, thought patterns over the ways of, of, of being in the flesh that we have access to the spiritual through. And so getting all that from Flannery O'Connor and then coming to mystics, I was just sort of naturally on alert. I was like, oh, these mystics, they all denigrate the body, you know, and that's not what I found um, from reading her. And it's just as you said, Victoria, I think that's right. It's because there's a nuance there. Um, you don't see her talking about this stinking flesh, this flesh that's always in my way, this, you know, this is causing me to sin, right? 
Uh, right, she's she's not Hamlet. She's not wishing yeah. that her too too yeah. solid flesh would <laughs> melt. Um, in in fact, her solid flesh gives her uh, a, a different view of of God and her experience of God. And I will say that also not not only being a Catholic, but being a woman. The, the, I mean, I haven't read all the women mystics, but when I think of the mystics that I have read, the women are more on the side of the body, right, uh, if you will, um, and and don't buy that sort of denigration that, that might be, say, Tertullian, you know. I just remember Simone de Beauvoir quoting Tertullian about women being the gateway to the devil or whatever. And it's just like, okay, don't let Tertullian stand for all of Christianity here and viewing the body of women, right? So if you are a woman, right? And and that's my issue with Beauvoir, too, who I like in a lot of ways. But the, the place that I depart from her is I just, I wish she would think about the body more in her discussion of of gender construction because i think there's a lot to um to deal with there that some later french feminists do a better job of um your vitigs and your sixus uh i think um yeah i know this is this is uh a Sixu Stan podcast. We've talked about her way way too much, uh, so I, I won't go. I won't go too far down that rabbit hole. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm really bothered by just picking and cho- you know cherry picking your Christians who who treat the female body that way, right? Which is what she does. So I mean, so she can make sh- all Christians sound like they denigrate the body. But to be fair. It's not like that's a small number, right? No, uh, agreed, agreed. I mean, we, we, we wouldn't be going almost 200 episodes if it was. Good yeah. point. So, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying now. But all the more reason to carefully read the nuanced treatment of the Christian female mystics. Absolutely. And, and she even says, when she's laying out the structure of uh, Interior Castle in her intro, she says that its metaphorical construction makes it more suited for women because women can understand multiple layers of thought at once um, easier than men can. Like that oh, the, interesting. That the hmm. metaphor is itself a feminine thought construction. Well, that's interesting because I may, I thought she had just said something like women are so stupid that they can't. I don't know, uh, you know, and I, I tend to look that over and just think, okay, this is what you were taught back in the you know 16th century, but um, it, it might be that your translation is really different. And I I did not catch that. Is that in the first mansions somewhere? Oh, I'm gonna make a lot of noise flipping pages. I think it's in the. Maybe it's in the introduction that I read and not in the first mansions part. Okay, because I don't remember that, and I would have really perked up to to hear her say that there's something, uh, you know, in women's sort of experience of the world that makes them more able to understand metaphors, right? To 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 inhabit metaphors. Because as I said, I'm very interested in metaphor, and the more we learn about metaphor, the more we realize it's really the origin of thoughts. Like our very earliest thoughts are all metaphorical, uh, because our body, our experience of our embodiment in the world. Um, and so I'm very fascinated by that issue. 
here we go. It's it is the um, the introductory part of my edition. Uh, the one who bid me write this thinks that women understand one another's layered language best and that it is my sister's affection for me that would make them pay special attention to my words. Therefore, it is important for me to explain the subject clearly to them in any way that I can. Uh, thus, I'm writing only to my sisters. The idea that anyone else could benefit by what I say would be absurd. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, my translation just says the language used between women rather than women's layered language. I'd have to, I wonder what it was in the Spanish. I'd have to look. Hmm. I don't know. But I, I jumped right on that. I thought it was fascinating, too. So next, before we get to the autobiography, I want to talk about the Let Nothing Disturb You prayer, um, which, if not my favorite prayer, is definitely one of my favorite prayers. Um, and I pray it all the time. I've memorized it. Uh, it is such a, such a balm to me, particularly when um, I'm dealing with an anxiety episode. I, I have an anxiety disorder, and my husband jokingly refers to uh, St. Teresa as the patron saint of small, nervous women, <laughs> uh, because he, he knows that I, I get a lot of comfort out of her own experiences um, with, with anxiety and depression. So I'm just going to read this whole prayer. It's very short. It is only a few lines, um, and then we can talk about it. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Well... If I, if I might start, Please. this was my introduction to Teresa of Avila was when my best friend in high school, who was very committed Christian and who, with whom I grew a, a ton in my faith, she wrote this out on an index card. Um, and it was like, the, and, you know, let nothing disturb thee, nothing affright thee, you know, and so that's the way that I have it memorized. And I stuck that up on my wall where I did my homework and I, it was, it just, I let it sink into my heart and, you know, become a part of my thinking because it's, it's, there's, is there anything more important than learning that, it, that God alone suffices, right? Not to let anything else really get at you. Uh, and I, I understood it then. I didn't practice it in the way that I feel like I've learned since, right? But sure. But that's the start. That's the start. So, but now I'm wondering, I mean, it's it's kind of like an affirmation. I'm wondering how you pray it, right? Um, it's like an affirmation from one person to another. And I, I, thought, I, I thought of my friend as saying it to me, you know? So, Victoria, you know, what's the, do you know anything about the history of it as a prayer? I don't. Um, I, I know that lots of people pray it regularly, and I think of um, maybe just because she's my patron or maybe just because 
uh, I am Catholic and I pray to saints now, and I think that they also are praying for me. Um, uh-huh. what, when I pray it, I think of Teresa herself praying it over me and saying it to uh, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, that so makes that's, a lot of sense. That's my angle. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Um, but it really is interesting to me, even more so having heard you say that, that it, that a, a friend of mine, a woman who who loved me would give me this, you know, as, as, as a, as a way to say to me, this is the way that you need to live. You know, that makes it even more meaningful. Yeah. I, I find it a very intimate, um, series of words. I, I love the thing that I love about the prayer and the thing that I think makes it perfect for calming my anxiety brain is, um, that this prayer makes me feel relatively small um, compared to the power of God. Because yes. my anxiety brain, the, the thing about anxiety is that anxiety lies to you and tricks you into thinking that the way you feel right now is going to be the way you feel forever. And it's like this terrible mental Correct. feedback loop that you can't get out of. And so... This prayer tells me that that disorder, that unsettled feeling, um, won't last. That it's not controlling me. That God controls me now and eternally. And this idea that my perspective, my concerns, my tiny anxieties that consume my thoughts and aren't that important anyway are going to pass away, but God is not going to pass away is really comforting because it tells me that nothing I mess up is actually that important. Yeah, it really is kind of a really wonderful way to say this too shall pass, which is a really important thing for everybody to remember, right? Like, no matter what it is, God is the same, and patient endurance attains to all things, uh, and he alone suffices. I mean, those are very basic things, truths, that are like this, whatever you're enduring right now will not be around. Uh, even just these, these thoughts forever, right? They, they, they are not you. You, can't, you do not have to identify with the thought. Uh, so it is extremely helpful when you feel anxious and overwhelmed. Yeah, and I love it. it. It's... Sorry, go ahead, Marie. Oh, I was just uh, agreeing that uh, to me what's so, so beautiful about this prayer is the way it affirms what already exists, the presence of God in our lives. And it's like in the interior castle where she talks about you could have that presence be sort of obscured from your vision, but God is still there. And um, this prayer just affirms that. So that's why it's so good for um, centering ourselves in God as the still point in the, the turning world. I love that. Wonderful use of that phrase. <laughs> uh, what about your own prayer lives? Are there any prayers that you pray regularly for your own personal spiritual practice? Um, and if there are, share them with us. Well, it's a question like this is very convicting to me of how much my spiritual disciplines are really currently lacking. It's something that I've been feeling a lot of the want of. I really need to make more space for like a uh, conscious space for prayer in, in my life. Um, but I guess to, to 
answer, one honest answer would be that there is one little simple prayer that's always been with me since I was just like a tiny child. And I don't remember when I started using it or where it came from, but it's basically just like a breath prayer. Whenever I felt uh, anxious or afraid, I would just repeat, the Lord is my God. The Lord is my God. And um, so I remember like, for example, one of the houses we lived in when I was uh, small in Bolivia it was built around a patio. So at night, I would have to leave my room on one end of the patio and go across this dark <laughs> patio to uh, the bathroom and, and a whole separate room. And I would repeat that to myself so I wouldn't be scared. <laughs> so, um, so though my idea of what God's sovereignty means has changed a lot since I was a child, that particular just sort of breath prayer is still something that I repeat when I need to like center myself or when I feel anxious. Um, it's both this habit now and a reminder, um, not so much that God will protect me from whatever like weird reptiles might be in the darkness, but that, that God is uh, with me in the darkness. That's solid. That, that's, that'll work. Yeah, it's really that that'll preach, as we say in the South. <laughs> right yeah i mean those basic prayers that are the most heartfelt right i mean i i have the sinner's prayer you know the that really sort of basic one have mercy on me a sinner i pray that one a lot um the Mm -hmm. one that i feel like i pray most of all is i'm trying to learn how to meditate but to keep my meditation practices solidly christian so when i breathe i'm always breathing in the joy of the Lord and breathing out the peace of Christ. And it's, a, it's always a prayer. I'm going to breathe in your joy, breathe out the peace. And then like the breath outward, just emphasizing that, that again, the goal of magnanimity of, you know, peace of Christ be to others. That's beautiful. I love how much we're talking about breathing and praying at the same time, because, yes. um, when you talk about the word inspiration, right, D- divine inspiration, um, it means God breathed, that God breathes into man, and uh, and therefore we are inspired creations of God. Uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. And it just connects you with the with your body, just to connect it to an earlier comment that we had, that we're not brains on sticks. This is a part of the way that we are meant to, you know, communicate with God through our embodiment here. Yeah, that's, that's really fantastic. I did not expect the conversation to go in that direction, and I'm really glad that it did. I love that. Anything else to say about this prayer or our prayer practice in general before we move on to the autobiography? I say we move on. Okay. Uh, so we read chapters five and six of the autobiography and um what does she talk about in those chapters what's kind of the the central issue that she unpacks well the the big focus in these chapters seems to be this intense physical suffering that she experiences and uh the patience that's granted to her by god to endure it uh, yes, she, in fact, prays for illness on purpose. She talks about uh, another member of her order that suffers from 
I'm pretty sure they are what we would call um, peptic ulcers uh, in 21st century language. She describes um, stomach pain that won't let this woman eat is caused by sores uh, that make her lose a lot of weight. Um, And she says that she was really affected by this woman's illness and her patience through the illness, and that she prays that God give her uh, an illness just as strong or stronger so that he will teach her patience. And the first time I read this, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the first time you read Julian, right? And she is practically saying the same thing. Yes. I I hoped that you would uh that you would bring that up that it's it's a very similar situation. Um the first time I read it I was like, "Wait, maybe this is ableist? Like maybe I don't like this um because this this idea that like physical weakness must lead to spiritual strength seems a little oversimplified to me. Um, Also, y'all, real talk, I have had and am currently still taking medication for stomach ulcers, and they are no joke, and I just, I can't imagine seeing someone dealing with that and being like, that's what I want to happen to me. No, I'm sorry to hear that. First of all, yeah. that's very difficult. Um, I I think I'm almost done with them. I think um, I I can eat and drink most of the things that I was doing before, and I am only taking one pill a day instead of two. So, progress there. Thank God. Mercy. Yes. You no, know, it's so. Yeah, I know exactly what you what you're saying when you say this seems problematic and and simplifying and. And I'd been trying to wrap my mind around it, but it wasn't until we had just finished talking about the prayer that I realized, I think, what she's going for. You know, the prayer says, patient endurance, patient endurance attain it to all things, right? Um, it, it's already the case that we need to be patiently enduring all things. And it seems to me that what she's asking for is something that will force her into dependence, on God. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And and I and I and I and I know enough to have experienced that myself. The kind of when I was 30 years old something happened in my life that just completely broke me down, but I've never felt closer to God, right? It wasn't a physical thing, it was an emotional thing, and I would never pray for that again, God knows. But oh my goodness, was that a you know, to be able to truly at every moment say I need thee every hour mean it and know he's there that's 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 a mystical experience and i think that's what she's asking for absolutely i agree and i um i don't think i understood that on a deeper level uh until i a got out in the world and had to um move through the world independently as a disabled person which teaches you a lot of things. But um, one thing that I primarily had to learn and still have to learn to varying degrees every day and in every relationship I have is that sometimes I am forced to ask for help in situations that make me uncomfortable. And also that that is not 
um, a shameful or sad thing, that in fact communal interdependence is a holy thing and a thing that I should Mm -hmm. see the holiness of. So that's... Mm -hmm. That's really my evolving relationship with these particular chapters, that um, what you're saying, that, that physical um, physical pain, physical um, trials can really lead to dependence, interdependence, um, that is a really spiritually fulfilling way to mm-hmm. live. Well, what it does is shatter the illusion of independence, right? Yes. It's it's people who feel like they're independent who are just simply deluded. Right. And and so it's kind of a gift to be given in your life whenever you can understand, no, I'm actually completely dependent on right. God, other people, and it's just stupid Americans who think they aren't. Right, you know? yeah. I was I was just gonna say in in that way well, in a lot of ways, but um also in that way, Teresa is profoundly countercultural based on our current society's values. 100%. Yeah, just the, the ability to, rec- to you know, recognize that. And, and again, let's go back to the self-knowledge piece. Self-knowledge equals humility. It's, it's all connected to really understand that you can't just do this life on your own, that you need God, first of all, and then you need other people. And the whole goal is to love him and love others. Um, it, it's just like, what's the fastest way I can get there? I think is what she's saying. Yeah. Um, at first when I was reading this, I really didn't like that her, her prayer to have the suffering like this, none with the stomach ulcers, because it seemed to me like the same kind of, self-destructive impulse like in the opening chapters when she's a child and she and her brother want to go off and be martyred for the sake of martyrdom um and that that's sort of an amusing instant that she recounts it seems humorously but also approvingly as an adult um that sort of seemed like the same kind of idea to me but then one thing i appreciated about these chapters was how um what you're talking about, how her physical suffering um, is linked to uh, love and displaying God's glory through displaying love. And that um, sort of, that reminded me of uh, my, my mother had a condition where she had chronic pain for years before she died. And um, it did, it seemed to make her even more focused on like showing love and concern for others and accepting their love. And um, actually, Anne, that we've mentioned earlier, sort of reminds me of my mother in that way and the way that she deals with her chronic pain. Um, Anne is my supervisor in the work that I do on Christine de Pizan. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Please please, the next time you talk to her, tell her that uh, I said hello. Certainly. <laughs> I miss her very much. Um, well, and, and let's be very clear, just having that physical suffering does not equal necessarily responding that way. So that is a beautiful, oh, certainly, certainly right? Not. Beautiful response and a very hopeful one. But that was that was something I appreciate about these um, growth. Chapters. Okay, uh, shall we move on to our final passing on segment. Are we ready to do that? 
Oh, I want to sure. mention, I did look up the Spanish and it doesn't talk about layered language. So it's, it's interesting that the translator made that choice. The language maybe, of women. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's just my translator being weird. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, in any case, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Marie, how about you go first with recommendations? What do you have for us? I'm going to recommend a post by Sarah Bessie, who's the author of Jesus Feminist, on breath prayers. It's called Breath Prayers for Anxious Times. And she there sort of describes um, some of that centering practice through breathing that we've uh, mentioned in this episode, and including the sinner's prayer that uh, Christina mentioned. So that would be one place to look if you're interested in that kind of prayer. Thanks, Marie. I'm such a big Sarah Bessie fan, um, particularly in the in the recent um, late pandemic months. Her posts have have been so calming. Uh, so thanks for recommending that. Christina, what do you have for us? Yes, I'm sorry if I've recommended this before. I just simply don't remember because I'm talking about it to everybody right now. But I have been reading. Thomas Trahern's Centuries uh, over the last several months, and I just don't know why I never found this book before now. It is marvelous and so poetic of a meditation on the beauty of the world, including the beauty of the human soul, which is right where Teresa starts, that it just... It, it's so inspiring. It's talking about an inspiration and having the breath of life kind of put into you with something that you read that I just love it. Sounds great. I'll have to check that out. I think you did actually tell me to read that recently. I tell everybody to read it. So whether I've mentioned it on the show or I don't know, and I'm teaching it now and it's just great. Sure. Uh, okay, so I my recommendation is sort of double um, a double recommendation. Uh, in general, um, I recommend memorized prayer as a spiritual practice, uh, something that you don't have to think about and that you can uh, turn to in times of stress when your reptile brain is just kind of overloaded. Uh, and I'm oh, also that's what the reptiles are. <laughs> Maybe so. I wasn't even <laughs> trying. I wasn't even that trying really to true. do that. <laughs> the lower brain. Wasn't even trying to do that, but that's fantastic. Uh, I'm also going to recommend a quote from Call the Midwife, um, which I know we have praised uh, on this show before, really covering all our greatest hits uh, tonight. Um, because I have just completed my yearly rewatch uh, of several seasons of that series, um, I have been thinking a lot about a quotation from Sister Monica Joan, um, the best, in my opinion, character on Call the Midwife. She's talking about um, the power of memorized prayer, and she says, the liturgy is of comfort to the disarrayed mind. We need not choose our thoughts. The words are aligned like a rope for us to cling to. 
Uh, I really love that metaphor, uh, and it really is what draws me to um, old historical prayers that people have prayed for years and years. I love that. Love it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That reminds me of something that Willie Jennings says, that um, communal prayer holds our faith for us when we are unable to. We're supported by it. It seems like that kind of liturgical prayer is part of that. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I love that language of support, too. Okay, thank you, ladies, for a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network, and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Christina Bieber-Lake and Marie Hawes, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we will discuss the films of John Carpenter in the biggest event of the Christian Humanist Radio Network year, our network crossover. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.